0: A very warm welcome to our audience joining us today and a very good afternoon from Singapore. On behalf of the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore, it gives me great pleasure to launch our Bridging the Gulf series with the first episode today entitled, Politics, Energy and Opposition in the Gulf. What you need to know. My name is Clemens Che and I'm a research fellow at the Middle East Institute and equally your host for this series, which will run every Friday. And across eight episodes with additional cultural segments planned. The aim of this series really is to help the public better understand the Gulf region comprising Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Oman, Bahrain, Qatar and the United Arab Emirates. So what do we know about the Gulf besides the spectacular architecture and skyscrapers such as the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, the tallest building in the world since 2009? And what else do we make of this spectacular architecture? Do the Gulf states have a history that goes back before the discovery of oil? Are there connections or similarities between Singapore and the Gulf region? Singapore has been allocated since 2018, a country quota of 900 Muslims who are allowed to perform the annual Hajj pilgrimage. To the holy city of Mecca in Saudi Arabia. And this is a practice that goes back a long way, as you can see on your screen, with a photo from the National Archives of Singapore, uh, a photo of pilgrims back in 1956, waiting at the harbour before they set off for, for Mecca. In November 2019, when Singapore President Halima Yaqub visited Saudi Arabia and Kuwait on state visits, Saudi King Salman conferred the president with the King Abdul Aziz Medal, the highest civilian honor in the kingdom. But the talk of the town really was that President Halima's means of transport, that the fact that she traveled on a commercial carrier, Emirates, instead of a private jet, much like the American version of Air Force One, was regarded with puzzlement by Gulf citizens, but also interpreted on the ground as an expression of humility. Now, if you allow me to trace the historical development of this Gulf cities to the time before oil was discovered, much of academic literature describes how these were bustling port towns deeply engaged with maritime trade, a reality that mirrored Singapore's harbour back in the day. So with the exception of Saudi Arabia, most of these Gulf populations developed along the coastline, where trade was conducted at the seafront, Goods were then brought into the town's market, and then these products could be further taken inland via the desert. So you can see on your screens what it looked like, you know, before oil was was discovered. You can also remark a certain axis or line from the coast where the goods are taken in a straight line and transported, you know, from the seafront to the market in the middle, and then into the desert. Pole diving was also a way of life, and especially important for countries like Bahrain, Qatar, and Kuwait. That is until the Japanese founded the cultured coal industry. Following the discovery of oil, the Gulf countries underwent rapid urbanization. As you can see in this diagram flow, this was how it looked like, the whole urbanization process. The end product is, of course, what we see as modernist cities today, but that should not take away the rich history from these countries. In terms of housing, the urban planning in the Gulf focused on suburbanization, which actually demolished the old interconnected houses, as you can see on the left side of your screen, and moved towards ring roads, cars, and villas, which also signified and eventually led to the breaking up of the extended family and moving towards single nuclear families. So I believe I have given a quick overview of the historical and geographical transformations of the Gulf countries and I shall not dwell any further and introduce our distinguished speaker for the day, Dr. Jessie Moritz. Dr. Moritz is a lecturer at the Center for Arab and Islamic Studies at the Australian National University and her research focuses on state society relations in the Gulf as well as Diversification strategies in the region and by Gulf authorities. Today, Jesse Moritz will dive into the social, economic, and political changes that the Gulf states are experiencing. And following her presentation, we'll have a Q&A where our audience, you, are more than welcome to key in your questions in the chat box or raise your hand via Zoom and we can then unmute you to ask your question. So, a very welcome, very warm welcome to Dr. Jesse Moritz and to begin. Please allow me to put forward a question. Do you think very wealthy, oil-rich states are more politically stable? Does wealth produce citizen satisfaction? Over to you, Dr. Moritz.
1: Thank you so much uh, for the introduction. And I think it really is so fascinating to think about the similarities between Singapore uh, and these uh, Gulf states and between a lot of the uh, Eastern and, and South Uh, Southeast Asian economies and the uh, Gulf states, and I'm sure that that's something that's going to be covered really well uh, in this series. So what I wanted to cover in this introductory lecture is kind of a general overview of what do we think we know about um, politics and energy and uh, and the gulf in general. It's very often analyzed through those political science or uh, economic uh, lenses or what I do, which is political economy, which kind of combines the two. Um, and I also thought that sometimes there's a perception that there's a lot of a very state-focused analysis that comes through, um, and I thought it's it would be really interesting to also talk about where do societies fit in uh, to this picture as well. So we have some some theories about why we think uh, the states, these governments, operate in the ways that they do, um, and what affects them. Uh, and so we're going to talk about that, what we thought we knew, and then we're going to talk about what is changing uh, in the Gulf. So. These are the countries that I'm going to uh, focus on uh, today Uh, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, the UAE, and Oman. Together, they form the Gulf Cooperation Council. Um, So they're Uh, They they have a regional organization uh, for themselves and combined with uh, Iraq and Iran, they form sort of a microcosm uh, within the Middle East, an important regional area uh, for politics. So together, these, these six countries that I've outlined they've been known for their exceptional stability over the past 50 years, if not longer, if we're not talking about uh, centuries. And why is that? And why do we think that they have been so politically stable, especially in the context of the last 10 years has been quite a tumultuous time for the Middle East in general. But why have these countries not seen, for example, revolution or uh, really, really widespread mass mobilization, et cetera? So that's one of the puzzles, I think, we're going to get into today. uh, today. And that does also, I think, go to um, Dr. Uh, Che's question as well is, is it about oil? Uh, Because that's one of the key lenses that has been used to understand politics in these countries. Uh, One of the ideas is that we know that these countries are very, very oil rich. Um, And I'll go into more um, of that in a second. Some of them are very gas rich as well. So Qatar is a liquefied natural gas exporter. Um, And so we know that they're very oil rich, but oil isn't just something that's going to affect the economy of a country. There's actually a lot of ideas about how it might also affect the politics of a country. And that raises this question, you know, are oil very oil rich countries? more likely to be politically stable. And the um, early theory, I'm talking about 1970s, says yes. Um, And it says that that is why we haven't seen uh, the revolutions in these these countries that we've seen in other parts of the Middle East. And I'll go more into why in a second. Um, But there's another lens that's been used to understand these countries. Um, So that is, religion. And I'm not necessarily saying that religion has always been found to correlate with uh, stability or instability um, in the Middle East, but more that there has been a lot of focus on Islamist politics. These are important countries. Um, You know, Saudi Arabia, for example, hosts millions of pilgrims every year. So it's an important aspect of politics for us to understand. Um, One example of our sort of, I guess, traditional understanding of of how religion might interact with politics in this region is that um, there was an American political science literature that tried to argue that because these countries are majority Muslim, and because in the view of these uh, scientists, social scientists, that Islam and democracy are sort of fundamentally opposed and cannot be reconciled together, that that is why um, it's been uh, less, Uh, possible for democracy to spread in the Middle East. Now, there's a lot of problems with that literature. Uh, There's a lot of critiques of that literature, and I think they're very fair critiques. But what that's meant is that these countries have kind of been treated as outliers. They're often excluded from our broader attempts to understand global politics. So religion is the second angle through which I think these countries have been understood. The third angle that I'm going to focus on today is that of monarchies or sultanates or emirates. Um, So part of the idea is that maybe there's some form of legitimacy. If you have a king or a sultan or an emir, particularly in very highly tribal societies and and all of these societies do have very strong tribal histories. Some of them also have very strong sort of uh, settled history of of settled peoples um, in the countries as well. Um, But nonetheless, tribal politics are common across the region. So if there is a traditional sense that the members of the tribe should accept the authority of the ruler or the sheikh of the tribe, maybe that explains why uh, the kings and emirs um, or sultans of the Gulf today have been accepted as rulers, i.e. by not being overthrown. So, and the other thing that emirs and and kings that focus on that gives us is helping to understand the longevity of politics in this region. So, um, despite the sort of tumult, particularly of Iraq and Iran, um, and, you know, the Iraqi invasion of uh, Kuwait in the 1990s, the internal politics of these countries from the 1970s or so until today have have been really mostly one of uh, continuity, certainly um, in the fact that we have the same ruling families are in power in these countries that were in power 100 years ago. Maybe the sort of the king or the emir has changed, but the same family is in power. So maybe that gives you kind of a, a continuity of politics. And even when an individual ruler has changed, because they rule for so long, they're not sort of facing regular elections, maybe that contributes to some political stability in the region as well. Again, I'm kind of setting up these traditional assumptions about how we think politics works. And then I'm gonna go through and talk about how that is changing. um, And maybe some of our original ideas, these ideas about oil and religion and emirs and kings, maybe they're not right. Uh, So I want to sort of challenge you guys in the audience to also think about, do you agree with these claims that are being made by uh, academics and scholars? So um, that's a brief overview of traditional politics in the region. And again, another thing that you'll notice is that the people, the societies um, of the region are also kind of missing from that analysis. A lot of it is about top down uh, governance. So um, it's about why these governments are autonomous of their populations. So that's an interesting claim as well that I hope you'll keep in mind as we get further into the presentation. So even if we fully accepted all of these claims about oil and religion and, and kings and how they affect politics, the, those if we call them variables, those sort of causes of stability, they're changing. So traditional sources of authority, such as oil, that has been undermined by low energy prices and the long term transition to renewable energy. These are countries that in the next 50 years are going to go through enormous changes to their economy and then through that probably to their political uh, systems as well. Um, Simultaneously, regional politics have changed. The Middle East today is not what it was uh, 10 years ago or maybe even five years ago. And so how these countries grapple with that shifting regional landscape is really important to understand. Um, One particular theme has been the rise in um, the visibility of Islamist movements, such as a group called the Muslim Brotherhood. And they've been quite active across the region in the last 10 years. And these six countries disagree really strongly on how to respond to the rise of those groups. Uh, Another change, of course, is that when you have um, sort of rulers for life, kings or emirs or sultans um, who rarely uh, step down Um, uh, peacefully, it's usually only if sort of they died, or uh, there's, there's been a sort of internal family coup or something like that. Um, That means that they rule for a very long time. And we're now at the point where many of those rulers are, are aging. Um, So we might be at the point where there's going to be significant shifts to domestic politics in these countries, simply because the rulers are getting older, which means a new generation of rulers are coming to power. So there's all of these kind of, I guess, risk factors um, that could each of them have the potential to totally reshape the politics of this region. So it's a really interesting time to learn about the Gulf. And now I'm going to go into each of these factors in a little bit more detail um, and hopefully not go over time uh, today. So let's start with oil. Um, We know that these oil, these countries are are really oil rich. Um, The six countries that I mentioned alone, they control over 30% of the world's oil reserves. And if we include Iraq and Iran, they control another 17%. So that's what 47%, almost half of the world's oil. And I'm not talking about oil that's produced, I'm talking about oil that's sitting in the ground. Um, Almost half of the world's oil exists in this region. Um, So they're really important to the global oil industry. Um, At the same time, uh, oil, as I've been mentioning, it's not just an economic resource. We have a lot of Ideas and theory about how oil can actually interact with politics. And a lot of this rests on this idea of rents. Um, It's not rent like if you rent a house or something like that. In this term, uh, this term, an economic rent, refers to, in the context of oil, the difference between, you know, it costs, let's say, seven US dollars to produce a barrel of oil, but then you sell the barrel of oil for 70. US dollars. So that's $63 between the cost of production and then the price on international market, that's rent. Um, And in the case of certain natural resources like oil and gas and diamonds and and certain other natural resources, um, that gap is so significant that you can actually fund a country based off of those rents. Um, And in the case of these countries, um, the oil and gas industry is not largely privately operated, it's owned by the government. And that means that all of those rents, they go to the government uh, of that country and then the government can distribute um, benefits, economic and wealth benefits to its citizens. So this comes back to the question um, that uh, Dr. Clemens posed at the beginning of the lecture about can you can wealth produce citizen satisfaction? And the idea in these countries, they've been kind of the archetype saying that maybe you can, uh, maybe if you're a Qatari citizen and you have free education, free healthcare, um, you, if you're a male Qatari citizen and you're married and you're over the age of 30, um, you can apply to get a block of land. Um, on which you can receive an interest-free loan on which to build a house. Um, If you get into uh, a university overseas, you can have a fully funded scholarship. There's a little bit of competition for for that kind of thing. But overall, the sort of material benefits that you get as a Qatari citizen, the idea is that maybe that makes it less likely that Qatari citizens are going to want to challenge the government. That if they're A, not being taxed, because the government is so wealthy that they don't really need to tax their citizens very much. And B, they're offering all of these uh, material benefits. And, you know, maybe it doesn't matter if there haven't been elections for the federal, uh, for the um, uh, Majlis Ashura, which is kind of a a version of a parliament uh, in Qatar. Maybe if people are financially satisfied, they're less likely to be politically dissatisfied. So that's the idea behind um, what's called rentierism, and countries that can really rely on rents. So that, in that sense, really, um, and I'm not talking about oil at uh, all, oil rich states. So Iraq and Iran actually don't quite fit into this idea because they have such large populations that the amount of oil that they have per capita, plus their economies are in a little bit of disarray, due to sanctions and conflict, etc. They're not quite in this sort of elite global club of what are called the uber-rentier states, but Qatar is and Kuwait is. And uh, Saudi Arabia has a large population, but they have so much oil wealth that even per citizen or per capita, uh, they still have uh, a great deal of what's called co-optive power or ability to buy off citizens. Um, So that's the idea of oil and politics. However, as I mentioned, oil markets are changing. So I won't go too much into oil price movements or anything like that, because I think you are gonna have another lecture in this series that's gonna focus much more on oil. Um, But what I will point out is that oil prices are lower today than they were um, pre-2014. And in particular, between 2003 and 2014, I hope you guys can see my cursor here. Um, Between 2003 and 2014, there was this really significant rise in oil prices and they were above hundred US dollars a barrel. And that made Gulf governments really comfortable. They had a lot of money coming in. They could spend a lot on their citizens and they still had a lot left over for big development projects and and, and, um, putting money into sovereign wealth funds and and buying up, Uh, Even in this dip in the 2008 global financial crisis, the Gulf government still had enough sort of excess money that they could buy shares in global banks, etc. So they could do a lot in this period. But in 2014, oil prices fell by over 50 percent in uh, six months. And since then, the oil price has not reached anywhere near that, uh, that height. Um, And what that means is that these countries can't afford what they used to be able to afford back in 2014. Um, And if we think that some of their government spending might be connected to their political stability, then that's a problem. Um, And this is not just a short term issue either. Uh, In the in the longer term transition away from non-renewable energy, um, these governments are going to have to adapt uh, to Uh, sort of lower oil prices for longer and also um, that they're really critical resource on which they've based a lot of their they've been in quite a uh, geo-strategically important region. Um, The supply of oil globally has been quite securitized. All of that is kind of shifting as the global energy markets shift more in the direction of non-renewable energy. Um, Now the timelines very much differ on when this is, uh, when we're going to sort of hit a a crunch point. Some people have even said that we've hit it in 2020 with the pandemic. Um, But essentially that traditional reliance on being able to easily accrue a lot of money from oil and gas exports is not like it's not sustainable and it's not going to be the case in say 50 years. So one of the ways that we've tried to measure um, how vulnerable Gulf governments are to oil price fluctuations is through this idea here. Um, it's called a fiscal breakeven oil price. And the idea is that say in 2014 the Bahraini government they needed the if they exported the same amount of oil as they uh, previously did, and if they didn't cut government spending at all, they needed the oil price to be over 120 US dollars a barrel in order to meet their government spending obligations. So this isn't about the cost of production for a barrel of oil, this is about government spending. And again, if we think government spending isn't just uh, an economic issue, that it's also a political issue, the fact that oil prices have been more around about here for the last half decade means that these countries have either had to find other ways uh, to raise money. so They might have to draw down from a sovereign wealth fund or something like that, or uh, they have to cut spending. And that can be uh, quite a politically difficult thing to do. So the next theme that I mentioned is crown princes and uh, generational politics. So here um, I mentioned that we have this longevity of rulers in the Gulf. But over the last five years, of course, these rulers are aging. So some examples of that might include Omani Sultan Qaboos bin Said. He died in January last year after ruling for 50 years. And here on the slide, this is the new Sultan, uh, Haitham bin Tariq um, al said who took, uh, took over after Sultan Qaboos. Another example is Kuwaiti Amir Sheikh Sabah, um, al Ahmed al-Sabah, and he died in September 2020. And one of the f- ideas that I'm trying to sort of uh, get across today is that it really matters who's in charge of these countries because they can have very different approaches to domestic and regional and international politics. So both uh, Sultan Qaboos and Kuwaiti Emir Sheikh Sabah were really known as regional mediators. Um, so their absence, I think, has been uh, sorely missed uh, in the Gulf, um, another ruler who's who's still uh, alive but has been quite ill in the last year is Saudi King uh, Salman bin Abdulaziz Al um, So he's 85 years old now. So um, say in uh, two or three decades, he's he's not likely to be with us. And that means that the next generation of crown princes, of the current crown princes, they will be in charge. So there has been increasing interest in who are these new, um, newly powerful crown princes. Uh, There's been a lot of focus on the Saudi crown prince, who I'll go talk about more in a second, um, the Abu Dhabi crown prince, whose name is uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, um, and also the uh, Qatari and Bahraini, or the Qatari emir. Um, And the Bahraini crown prince have also been more prominent in regional politics because in the case of the uh, Qatari emir, he took over from his father while he was in his 30s in 2013. So he's still quite young. Uh, And the Bahraini crown prince, uh, his father is also quite old. um, So he's been increasingly visible. So to give you a sense of who these people are, I wanted to give you a quick overview of some of these Bahraini government uh, factions. So this is a picture of, uh, King Salman, um, of, sorry, King Hamad, <laughs> sorry, uh, King Hamad of Bahrain. Um, this is his son, uh, King Salman bin Hamad, al-Khalifa. Uh, this is, uh, the king's uncle. So this is, uh, Sheikh Khalifa, um, uh, bin, um, Sheikh Khalifa bin, uh, uh, Salman al-Khalifa and these are some other relatives who are sometimes referred to as the Khawalids. Um, So the two people in the picture are brothers uh, Khalid bin Ahmed al-Khalifa, he's the royal court minister, and Khalifa bin Ahmed al-Khalifa, the commander-in-chief of the Bahraini Defense Force. So they're all members of the same family. We're not talking about sort of uh, Bahrain transitioning to a republic or anything like that. But even within the royal family, who rules and who has the king's ear while the king is uh, is um, while the king is still ruling matters. So to give you an example of that, 10 years ago in Bahrain, there were really widespread protests across across the streets in Bahrain. Um, And the Crown Prince Salman, he argued that the government should take a conciliatory um, uh, response to these uh, opposition actors. He said that they should negotiate with them um, and that they should have an ongoing dialogue with them and that maybe they should implement some reforms. Um, The prime minister, argued that and unfoot he's not um he actually died late last year. So I'm kind of giving you a sense of, of what was happening in, in 2011. But more recently, the, these are those three factions that I would watch nowadays um, or in 2021. But in, in 2011, the prime minister of Bahrain, who's quite close to business community uh, in Bahrain, he advocated that, no, we need to crack down on the protesters because they're disrupting the business activity of Bahrain and this is unacceptable. Um, whereas the Khawalid uh, brothers have been associated with uh, also very strong support for taking repressive action towards opposition. Um, again, because maybe they they perceived, from their view, they perceived a threat from the opposition that's linked back to Iran and connected to the uh, Shia identity. Um, the um, sheer identity of a lot of uh, opposition protesters. So all I'm trying to really get a sense, uh, get across here is that they disagreed on how to respond to the protesters. So whoever uh, had the king's ear was going to have a real effect on domestic politics. So we could go through the same thing in Saudi Arabia. Um, This is the king Uh, Salman on the left here, this is the current Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, sometimes called MBS, and this is the former Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Nayef. If I were giving this talk, maybe six or seven years ago, I'd be talking about the factionalism between current Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and former Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Nayef. However, these days, it's pretty clear that the former Crown Prince uh, uh, Mohammed bin Nayef has been effectively sidelined, but it does still matter, uh, these internal sort of family politics and who was going to take over um, when, as I mentioned, King Salman, Salman is aging, especially because the current Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia has been connected to a lot of quite Um, let's say uh, aggressive foreign policy moves, such as their intervention in the war in Yemen, uh, the cutting off of all diplomatic and trade ties with Qatar from 2017 to 2021. Um, He was connected to the murder of the Washington Post uh, journalist as well. So he's a bit of a controversial figure, but I'm gonna talk more about him in the last section of this presentation.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Moritz for outlining the uh, changes in Gulf leadership and also the economic trends of the region. Um, If I could remind our audience that you can start keying your question into the chat box and we could always uh, read out your questions after uh, Dr. Moritz finishes her presentation. But one more question for her. So is it just governments that are going through these generational changes? What about the societies?
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, that's a really good question because, as I mentioned, there does tend to be sort of a top-down focus when we try to understand politics in these countries. But a lot of the research that I do is really trying to look at, at bottom-up uh, pressures. So um, I've got I've got a video uh, that I think will be amusing uh, to your uh, to um, you, you guys listening in today, which is an example of how sometimes we think that these governments are you know, completely divorced from their societies, that they, they are issuing reforms, but they're kind of occurring in vacuum. And I, I wanted to show an example of where actually um, many of uh, you as viewers might know that Saudi Arabia uh, until recently had a ban on women driving. Um, and uh, a few years ago, in fact, in, in 2018, Uh, the government reversed that ban and they now allow women to drive. It was a few months after, unfortunately, I was doing fieldwork in Saudi Arabia. So when I was there, I couldn't drive. But next time I go back, I can. Um, And at the time, this was presented as a very top-down measure that the government is offering this reform uh, to society. But this is an example. This is a video clip from 2013 of how actually Even if political associations are banned, as they are in Saudi Arabia, even if there's not sort of, it's not a democracy, there's not regular competition for elections, etc. There's still a lot going on in terms of social debates, including on quite sensitive topics. So this is a, I'm only going to play the first minute or two, um, but this is a comedy video that was created by Saudi comedians who are based out of a Uh, TV studio in Riyadh, um, and I actually interviewed a few members of the production team that created this video. Um, And what they're doing is they're offering a comedic, satirical take um, on why women weren't allowed to drive. So this video, as I mentioned, was created in 2013, and the lift on the ban on women driving was in 2018. So it was a bit before that. Um, but this is the kind of debate that you might see in Saudi society. And I'm not saying, by the way, that every, all Saudis agree with them, but it was one of the voices in local Saudi society.
2: Hello, my name is Hisham faghi I'm an artist and social activist. I don't really listen to music. But while studying in the U.S., I heard a song by a Jamaican guy that really caught my attention. I decided to do my own rendition, with lyrics relevant to my culture, but without musical instruments. And now, with the help of some of my talented friends, I sing. You can't forget your past, so put your car key away, no woman, no drive, no woman, no drive.
1: No woman, no drive. Okay, I'm going to pause it there. Um, But if you're interested, this video is available on YouTube. You can go and look at No Woman, No Drive. Um, And it is a parody. When I went and interviewed the um, studio that made this uh, film, in fact, this, uh, this comedian, is, his name is Fahad al-Butairi, and he's actually, his wife was one of the key women driving activists, so it is parodic, but it's such a dry sense of humour that I'm not sure it's always entirely clear that they are joking, um, but it's an example of the very active um, societal debate that does occur even in countries uh, such as Saudi Arabia, where I think maybe from externally from other countries around the world we don't necessarily get a sense that that debate is occurring we really only hear about government actions so that brings us to the fact that these populations are also uh, going through a generational shift Um, for example over two-thirds of the Saudi population is under the age of 35 so that brings up the question is the um, crown prince of Saudi Arabia Mohammed bin Salman um, is he responding to and representing that increasingly youthful society when he for example claims to be trying to empower a more moderate version of islam in saudi arabia or when he offers more social liberalization such as opening up cinemas um, having more public football matches and concerts more mixed gender spaces relaxation of dress codes um, the limits on the religious police etc Um, So this picture here on the top of the slide is uh, a Saudi fan who's got a scarf that he's wearing around his neck. You can't quite see, but uh, King Salman's picture is on this end of the scarf, and this is Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. So it's, I think a question for you guys is, um, the, has uh, Mohammed bin Salman found a constituency here of young Saudis that he's really uh, correct in responding to, or is he more implementing his own project and then the government is still quite divorced from uh, popular opinion? Um, the other final thing I'll go into is that regional politics have also shifted. So, And this is, again, um, I guess, problematizing or challenging the idea of that simplistic relationship between religion and political stability or instability. So different Gulf governments have found themselves on opposing sides in terms of whether or not, in terms of their views on political Islam in the Middle East. So Qatar and Turkey and Iran, for example, they have supported Muslim um, Islamist movements like the Muslim Brotherhood. At the same time, Abu Dhabi, I mean the UAE more generally, but quite specifically uh, Abu Dhabi and Saudi Arabia and Bahrain and Egypt and others, they have supported secular authoritarian actors. And this could be governments in the Middle East or it could be rebel groups. Uh, this on, picture on the left here is uh, a Muslim Brotherhood cleric called Sheikh uh, Sheikh Yusuf al Karadawi. Um, And he's pictured here going to an Al Jazeera event. Um, Al Jazeera is the news channel that is uh, sponsored by the Qatari state. So that's their logo in the background. So because they disagree, particularly Qatar and some of the other Gulf countries, they disagree on what the role of Islamist politics should be um, in the region. These disagreements have been playing out in regional politics be via proxy battles that they've been supporting different actors in Libya, in Egypt and other countries. Also through the Gulf crisis, which again was when uh, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Egypt and a couple other countries, they actually cut off relations with Qatar because they said Qatar was too close to Iran and Qatar was too supportive of the Muslim Brotherhood through Al Jazeera, among other things. and then it's also played out in a lot of the really escalation of misinformation and hacking and sort of propaganda and fake news across the region. And there's really interesting research coming out now about the manipulation of social media space, especially Twitter, uh, in these countries. So that leaves us with this question of, you know, where are the people in this picture? I showed the video of No Woman No Drive, but that's, you know, just a couple of young uh, guys and and girls in in Riyadh produced that. But I want to give you a broader sense that Gulf societies aren't missing in this debate. It's just that we don't always talk about them. So this is a picture of Uh, Omanis in 2011 who gathered in the globe Round near, it's a sort of central area in a city called Sohar in Oman to protest the um, lack of availability of jobs um, and perceptions of corruption among other issues. Again, sticking with Oman as an example, I would also point out that there is a lot of debate and discussion occurring on Twitter, even though it's very difficult to analyze it because you have to be able to tell what is manipulated and and what isn't. But this is an example of some hashtags that trended in Oman in 2017 uh, when Oman, Oman was trying to respond to low oil prices by Um, removing some of the subsidies on fuel prices and making fuel uh, a bit less cheap for Omani citizens. And at the same time, young Omanis were having trouble finding work. And so there was sort of an um, influx of uh, debate and discussion and criticism of the government on Twitter. This is a picture of a more recent protest uh, uh, in uh, Kuwait over uh, corruption issues or perceptions of corruption in government. Um, and this is a picture just to show you an idea of a protest about a specific recent issue. So this is a picture from a Bahraini protest against the government's recent signing of a normalization deal, or sort of a promise of signing a normalization deal with Israel. So I hope that gives you, I don't know, a, a detailed overview of what I think are some of the most interesting trends uh, in um, in. Uh, gulf politics and uh, economics at the moment as you can see going back to that idea of oil and religion and um, kings and emirs uh, really shaping the region I think we can see that those initial assumptions were maybe a bit simplistic and that there's a lot going on here to understand if you have time to uh, comb through all of the very rapid developments in this region. So I'll stop here, thank you so much and I'd love to hear your questions.
0: Thank you, Jesse, for a wonderful presentation. I think you, you outlined the main trends that are ongoing in the region. And also, um, you know these are the kind of political leadership changes that one should be taking note of, especially in the, in the various uh, ruling families of the Gulf. So we we'll now begin the question and answer session. So you can, for our audience, you can either raise your hand click on the raise hand button on Zoom, and then you'll be unmuted subsequently to to speak and ask your questions. Alternatively, you could also enter your question in the chat box, and I'll read it out uh, for for Dr. Moritz. So we we do have a couple of questions coming in. Uh, The first one from uh, Ong Baoxuan uh, and she says, thank you for showing that parody video, Dr. Jesse. It sparked off my question on healthcare in the Gulf states, why is the industry so expert dependent, especially for women healthcare professionals? As far as I'm aware, domestic medical schools are not gender balanced, and the brightest students, men and women, would rather go abroad for the degrees. What is the impetus for, for these? It's
1: hmm. a really interesting question. Um One of the things that I I can tell you is that, of course, that reliance on on migrant labour, I didn't even really talk about that uh, in the presentation today, but it's another really important uh, distinction um, between these governments and even other Middle Eastern governments and, and maybe even a little bit between the Gulf governments in that, you know, Qatar and the UAE, are what I would say extremely dependent on migrant labour. So the national population of Qataris and Emiratis maybe forms only ten to fifteen percent of the population. So you're talking about eighty-five to ninety percent of the um, uh, population is going to be um, foreign, uh, and that is symptomatic of, of these being very small countries and very reliant on on migrant labour. In terms of the healthcare industry specifically, um, one thing I can Um, I'm not sure if I have a perfect answer for you for why have they remained so expat dependent and certainly not in a a gendered sense, but what I can say is that there have been some interesting experiments uh, in terms of trying to reduce migrant labour dependency, so uh, I was doing some research in Bahrain uh, quite a few years ago now, but um, I was interviewing some uh, Bahraini government officials and I asked them as well because migrant labour dependence is not just, it's not just an economic dependence, it's not just um, troubling in terms of sometimes the rights of those migrant labourers. It's also often it can set off demography um, kind of uh, concerns among the population that you know, um, I'm sure here in Australia, if we could imagine, if 85% of the population of Australia was were not Australian citizens, that would that would have raised interesting political questions for us. Anyway, so the Bahraini government official, they were working on a program to try and improve the training of Bahraini nurses, uh, particularly female nurses, in order to reduce their dependence on um, uh, expatriate or migrant. Uh, labour in the nursing sector, and they were what they were doing is that they were they had created a essentially a fee that was going to be charged on um, any existing migrant uh, any existing um, migrant labour. Uh, that the employers would have to pay. So if they wanted to hire someone from say from Australia in the in any sector in Bahrain there was a little month there was a an initial fee and then there was a monthly fee that they had to pay and then they took the revenue from that and they put it into um, a number of things but one of them was training programs for Bahraini nurses. So I'd say that there are some interesting innovative projects in especially in Bahrain around trying to address that migrant um, labour dependence, but of course you still have to have enough um, Bahraini citizens who want to go and study nursing, which is a whole separate question.
0: Thank you, Jesse. We've got another question here uh, from Kenche Sim, it's uh, how were the recent movements of power uh, in the Saudi uh, ruling family and as well as in the region, especially the potential rise of MBS towards being ruler? mean to the to the region of of southeast asia how what are the implications of the gulf for our region
1: yeah really interesting question um i think one of the areas that i pay attention to the most uh is that idea of um mbs the crown prince uh I mentioned it really briefly in the presentation, but positioning himself as the supporter of a moderate or mainstream uh, Islam to challenge what he sees as the more extreme interpretations of Islam. And part of the challenge with that um, has meant that there's not been a great deal of clarity on, on what the definition is of moderate Islam, and um, but it has led the Saudi government to funnel Um, millions of dollars into sponsoring religious institutes, including all through Southeast Asia. Um, So that's, I think, a really interesting area to watch, um, especially because over time, uh, between, um, and this might be more maybe an issue for, uh, for example, for Malaysia, uh, which also sort of positions itself as a um, a leader of Muslim communities in, in Southeast Asia and Indonesia as well, um, but if Saudi Arabia is trying to sort of muscle in on that space and to say, no, actually, our interpretation of of what our government has defined as moderate Islam, this is the interpretation that should be followed. I think there are gonna be some interesting um, sort of rivalries, uh, I guess, between those, not only different interpretations, but with governments involved uh, in trying to ensure who um, who is the most legitimate speaker, I guess, for Muslim communities.
0: Thanks, Jesse. I think our audience are getting into the mood now. They are sort of adjusting their thinking caps. We've got another one here from Amit Tegwani. Uh, he says, before it escalates to protests, what avenues do the people have of letting their views be heard? Based on my experience in the UAE, the mass media is truly a mouthpiece for the government and there are strict laws for what can be said on social media. Do the people air their views during traditional matchly sessions only? And how effective do you think such avenues are?
1: That's a great question. And actually, this is one of the questions that drives a lot of my research is is trying to understand that relationship that, um, I think, especially coming from, say, a Western political science background, we're very much trained to look for civil society in certain spaces and not in others. So we look for formal political associations. And we look for uh, formal sort of civic associations as well. And a lot of those are exactly what is not permitted across much of the Middle East, not just the Gulf. Um, And so that's contributed to a perception that there really isn't a very strong civil society or really any civil society at all especially in these countries when they're when they're also oil rich and maybe able to satisfy their populations. And the UAE I'd say is one of the hardest countries uh, to answer this question in in because public space is so controlled. Uh, there. But what I can say is that Um, A lot of my research entailed actually going over to the Gulf um, and asking citizens, if you have a problem, you know, if you have, if there's a policy that's sort of negatively impacting you, how do you convey that to the government? How do you ask for reform from your government? And what I found is that there were some very unusual ways that citizens would interact with their governments. So in Uh, in Qatar, for example, which is another, I I sort of put it in the same line as the UAE in that there's very little observable opposition politics. There's really no um, functioning opposition societies. There's uh, very little kind of public political space. There is a lot of, like in the UAE, there are discussions that happen through the majlis, and I think that's one space where these discussions do Uh, do take place, but then it depends on the the WASTA or the connections of that individual, you know, whoever's running that majlis, do they actually have a connection to somebody else who has a connection to the royal family? If if they don't, then maybe those discussions in the majlis won't go anywhere. If they do, then maybe they can, Um, but that's really dependent on individual kind of influence, social influence. But there are other, I think, interesting avenues. So One of the avenues that I found in Qatar, where Qatari said if we have a a reform demand of the government, they said that we would call in to a local radio program. And we know that this radio program is uh, the guy who runs the radio program was rumored to have a close connection to the regime. So if you call into the radio program and you explain your problem, often you'll get an answer from the government. So I think... Uh, You're right that it's um, not a very visible public space and that probably is a lot less effective than more open um, public spaces, but I think that's still a long way away from the fact that, you know, these debates certainly are happening. Um, One of the areas that I'm hoping to look at soon is more um, societal reform and looking at uh, art, for example, um, and looking at how social debates play out in artistic space. That's actually why I played the comedy video is because I'm starting to look at comedians and can they engage in political debates in ways that don't really look like politics, but actually are and actually do inform public debate.
0: Thanks, Jesse, for for detailing the social reforms in the Gulf. I think we've got a couple more questions on that, uh, and one specifically on on Oman. Uh, That's this question from Chris from IATA, I believe it's the International Air Transport Association. His question is, I have seen that Oman has more of its citizens with working-class jobs, perhaps due to the lower amount of oil, and emphasis on the late Sultan Qaboos' encouragement of local employment through higher education. Do you think this will help more in the long-term success of the supernet versus the other Gulf countries? And I would like to add one more question on top of this one. Um, and that's by uh, Yo Then. His question is, what kind of changes are the Gulf states experiencing during the pandemic? And based on the rents that you were talking about, you know, what are these going to how are these going to change going forward?
1: Great questions. This is such a great audience. Um, so I think Oman is a really great question. Uh, I'm, I'm lucky that I did do um, some field work in Oman and I asked some of these same questions. And I know that it's it's a point of pride, I think, for many Omanis that they view. I heard it multiple times in interviews that contrary, they would say, kind of contrary to uh, our neighbours, we're not. You know too proud to be involved in, in this job or that job um and so taxi drivers was something that was pointed to fairly often uh, and this had actually been um omanized i.e 100 percent all taxi drivers in oman have to be omani nationals and i remember i was interviewing um an omani woman who said that you know we particularly enjoy and this is again pre-2018 when saudi women couldn't drive uh, She said that we really enjoy when Saudi nationals come across the border, they fly into Oman for a holiday and then they get picked up at the airport and it's a female Omani uh, citizen driving them. So it's not only the um, challenging that uh, idea of prestige as uh, um, that Gulf citizens should be above sort of menial uh, jobs or menial labor, but also sort of the gender issue uh, as well. Um, I do think that that will Uh, payoff for Oman, that they put a lot of emphasis on that. However, I I wouldn't overstate where they are now. So if I asked Omanis, would you be willing to be, say, a garbage man, there was a lot more reluctance uh, around that type of thing. So that same type of um, prestige association that some jobs are perceived as being sort of more socially prestigious than others, um, it does operate in Oman as well. Um, but I do think that Oman is, is better placed in part because they have to be, um, that they have been really badly impacted by the post-2014 lower oil prices and um, their government, especially under new uh, the new Sultan Haitham, has been quite clear uh, in, in saying that we really need to move away from this sort of rentier model of, of governance. So we really need to move towards something else. So I think Oman is both better placed and, and worse placed but worse placed financially may be better placed in terms of that prestige job issue oh and the other question on the pandemic um is really interesting I haven't because uh here in Australia we're not allowed to travel at the moment I haven't uh really been able to go back to the gulf since in a couple of years um and I I hesitate to try and um, draw any conclusions around popular opinion when I haven't been in the country uh, again because I don't think social media because it's it's such a manipulated space and uh, as somebody else pointed out there's a lot of self-censorship on social media as well I, I don't not sure I can trust that um, but in terms of government resilience um, I think it's been interesting watching the way in which gulf governments have um used their either sort of success in controlling the pandemic um, as a way to build up their uh, state branding. Um, So uh, the UAE and uh, Qatar, for example, have really emphasized the success of their vaccination programs so far. They've made a lot of uh, press announcements, government press announcements around how they're offering aid to other countries during the pandemic. It's it's something that I've seen a lot of governments around the world uh, doing. Um, claiming that you know it's so good here that we can actually help out uh, this uh, other country as well. Um, I think the economic impact of the pandemic will take some time to be understood. Uh, it, I think really in the in the Gulf region, um, the country that's been the two countries that have been hardest hit by the pandemic in terms of their economies are. Iraq and Iran um, but we're not really focusing on them today for the UAE um, I think it'll be interesting to see whether their tourism sector rebounds the way that uh, they they really need it to and the same kind of goes for Qatar and uh, Saudi Arabia as well has been really emphasizing a massive push to try and uh, privatize a number of industries and to push this really ambitious development program but they're trying to do it In the environment of a pandemic, Um, and so there were some problems with their very ambitious development plan before the pandemic. But I think it's even harder to do it now. So I don't think any of them are. I don't think any country in the world is is really doing fantastically um, at the moment, and the Gulf is no exception.
0: Right on the dot and spot on. Right on the dot at five pm, Jesse. So I think we have come to the end of episode one of MEIS Bridging the Gulf series. On behalf of MEI, I would like to sincerely thank Dr. Jessie Moritz for her wonderful presentation and, of course, taking the time to answer the questions from our audience who also provided very intriguing questions. So please, everyone, join us again next Friday for our second session of of the series entitled Top 5 Myths About Energy in the Gulf. So see you all soon. Thank you very much.